Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, this is this is a special episode for us, uh, Noel. It's one that's very close to your heart. Uh, we are diving into... Uh, a genuine mystery today, right? And this is a mystery that may be familiar to some of our listeners in the audience, uh, but for some of us, this may be something completely new. Spoiler alert, we're not diving in alone, but before we introduce our guest, Noel, do you want to give us a, a little bit of an understanding about I, this? Oh, sure. I sure would, Ben. Thank you for, for the opportunity, my friend. Um, yeah, uh, we uh, just wrapped, and when I say we, I mean myself, our mystery guest today. It's not really a mystery. It's in the metadata, but we're going to play it coy for now. And Lauren Pacheco, who's a, a colleague of mine, a producer from New York, who I've worked on a previous show called Happy Face With – 
Um, and this show that we just wrapped is called Murder in Oregon, and it dives into the uh, tragic death of Michael Frankie, who was the director of Oregon's Department of Corrections um, in the late 80s, 1989, about as late in the 80s as you can get. Um, this gentleman uh, was, who was a pillar of the community, a very well-respected uh, former judge, um, and just a very, very intelligent and kind man, um, was stabbed to death outside of his office. Um, and very quickly, there came to be kind of a reckoning where, you know, the government needed to pin this on somebody. It wasn't going to go away. And um, uh, unfortunately, as based on our research and the research of our guest today, um, they pinned it on a patsy, someone who very, very clearly didn't do it. But within all of that and that search for the truth is a twisting, turning story, the likes of you would which you wouldn't believe, something more along the lines of a true detective than uh, a, a nonfiction podcast. But um, again, we're not doing this alone. Today we have Phil Stanford with us, who has been invested in this story for going on 30 years um, and has just done a massive amount of research and written columns for The Oregonian um, on this very subject and has really been himself a huge part of this very story. Phil, welcome to Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, sir. Well, thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, I don't even, it's, it's such a massive story, and we don't want to spoil it for anyone that, you know, hasn't finished listening to the series yet. But how would you, you know, kind of characterize this story of murder in Oregon and the death of Michael Frankie? What, what would you say some of the main themes are uh, that we kind of, you know, touched on in this very, uh, very fascinating series? Well, uh, it comes in several parts. I mean, it, it was, first of all, an assassination, which no one wanted to acknowledge. Things like that just don't happen uh, in this country, uh, let alone uh, little old Oregon. But uh, this guy, Michael Frankie, had come into the state just about a year before. He discovered that his department was rife with corruption uh, all the way to the top, and he was going to reveal it. Uh, they had him killed. Well, that was the first part of it. The second part was the cover-up, a, a really pervasive cover-up, uh, because so many individuals and institutions in Salem, even if they weren't involved in the in the murder, had so much to cover up. Uh, it goes back to systemic things, I think, you know, just the nature of narcotics law enforcement that corrupted the state police, for example. Uh, and, and the governor, too, had things to cover up. So an assassination cover-up, uh, selection of a patsy, the manufacturer of evidence, against a low-level tweaker who had nothing at all to do with the crime. And uh, the insistence since then to this very day by the state that he still deserves to be punished, even though a federal judge has ruled that no reasonable juror would vote to convict. Hey, Phil, uh, I really want to know – uh, like in as much basic detail, which sounds like an odd phrase, but basic detail <laughs> about the corruption that that Michael uncovered. So, like, what what were some of the major things that he found out that he felt needed to be told to the public? Okay, well, first of all, uh, and, and you'll find this in just about every prison: uh, the drug trade, a protected drug trade, it, uh, for the drug trade to. Uh, flourish in or out of the prison that has to be protected. And, and uh, it was being protected in the Oregon State Penitentiary. There were a number of scams that the officials uh, had had run for 
for years, including Hanky Panky with Animals on the Farm, the sale of uh, equipment that belonged to the state and so forth. Uh, most recently, there had been an, a warehouse burned down for arson. Uh, it was arson uh, for insurance purposes, and he was onto that. As, uh, we refer to it as the A-shed. And we know that he was going to be talking the next day, uh, the morning after he was murdered, to the legislature about that. Uh, we have evidence that he was going to be talking about the A-shed. And, and just, just to point out, I mean, this is all, you know, while this, this might sound speculative to some folks that aren't fully familiar with the story, these are all corroborated by multiple sources. I mean, we, we absolutely know that this type of corruption is very, very real and that Michael uncovered it. Um, you know, there are various theories about who may or may not have killed Michael Frankie, which is a big, you know, the central question to murder in Oregon. It's who really killed Michael Frankie. Uh, but there is no question that this corruption was rife in the system. And that the man that the crime was pinned on, it, almost one thousand percent did not do it. He was like, well, you there's said, no yeah. question. Certainly, uh, among those who might have listened to the podcast or have been doing their own research, honest research, but there is still a sizable contingent of the local press uh, and and government that would argue that there was no corruption. They, they will not accept that. And, and from the beginning, that was the problem. They could not accept the idea that Michael Frankie might have been murdered because he was investigating corruption, was about ready to blow the whistle on some of his top officials. Uh, from the beginning, they said the official version was that it was a car burglary that had gone bad. And one thing that's interesting about this, Phil, is uh, in in just some preparatory research, I found that you had devoted no less than 80 columns uh, to the murder, right, when when working with the Oregonian. And I get this sense, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but I, I get this sense that for uh, for at least part of the time, you were in, in some sense alone speaking truth to power. Uh, bringing up these various things that the authorities uh, apparently willfully ignored. Did you ever feel like you were in a, you know, banging my head against the wall situation? Or did you feel that the authorities were listening? Or did you feel that they were actively trying to push this car burglary narrative? Um, and and do you think that they they genuinely thought it was true, or do you think they were, you know, as you had said earlier, Noel, uh, attempting to just close some case? Combination. I, I, it's hard to read their minds uh, of what they're thinking at first. I was not entirely alone. I, I was alone on uh, at my newspaper, uh, The Oregonian, which was the big dog in, in, in Oregon at the time. I was writing a column for them. Uh, it was a, a featured columnist, but there were other Reporters in Salem, uh, Steve Jackson, Eric Mason on, on on TV, who were following the story too. But uh, I I was I was certainly alone at the paper, and and I and because the Oregonian was such a a big force in in Oregon, I I was sort of the point man on the thing as far as the the authorities were concerned. The governor after after about six months of of. <laughs> My columns uh, held a press conference and said, where is this garbage coming from? Another interview, he, he called it uh, BS. He, he really – and I couldn't figure out at the time 
why he was resisting so strenuously. He'd just come into office, and if there had, was corruption, he could very well blame it on his, his predecessor and say, let's, uh, let's get to the bottom of it, but he didn't. As far as the state cops uh, who were conducting the investigation uh, in the DA's office in, in, in Marion County, I think from the beginning they knew they had to cover something up. Once they realized where this thing was going, especially then, they, they, uh, they may have been hoping from the beginning that it was a random car burglary, but once they realized the connections, which we talk about in, in Murder in Oregon, uh, to uh, officials in, in, uh, in, who were engaged in, in, in illegal activities, they knew they could not uh, pursue an honest investigation. They had to get a patsy. It's 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 true, and we do discuss all of that, and, and we kind of leave it up to the listener to sort of make up their minds, but we present all of this evidence, and what you realize, if you're paying attention, is that it just doesn't add up. You mentioned the idea of a car burglary gone wrong, and that was sort of the narrative that the, the state police and the, the government at large really pushed, this idea that Michael was leaving his office and uh, encountered somebody rifling through his car. They they use the, I, I love this delightfully uh, regional term, jockey boxing, which I'd never heard before, but I really liked <laughs> a lot, the idea of rifling through somebody's glove box. And Michael Frankie was a very tall, very fit man, um, really imposing, you know, stature. Uh, I, I don't know his exact height, but I think he was six feet something and very, you know, in shape and played basketball and, you know, was a very active guy. And, um, you know, the, the, the notion that he came up upon somebody rifling through his car who then gave him a single stab kill shot to the heart in addition to like a defensive wound it's very hard to believe and even in court like when they uh, tried to set up the scenario of you know the angles and all of that of where how he would have had to be stabbed you know if the guy was sitting in the car you know the angles didn't add up and can you talk a little bit about that about how some of those narratives that were pushed even in the trial just didn't really make sense well, you know, nothing about the case made much sense. That, that's, that's the thing. There, there, uh, there was no physical evidence to start with connecting Frank Gable. That's the guy they eventually indicted for the crime. Uh, there was no, no evidence that Frank Gable was there. I mean, no, no physical evidence. All they really had was, when they came down to it, was manufactured evidence of a bunch of jailbirds and ex-cons who had potential sentences hanging over their heads for, you know, a, a serious time for federal gun charges and federal uh, drug charges, uh, they got them to make up stories. And, and in the end, they got uh, a couple of young hoods, uh, a 17-year-old runaway girl and then a, a tough guy named Shorty Harden to say that they had been there and had seen it happen. <laughs> Jody Swearingen, the 17-year-old girl, event, uh, ran away before a trial could be held and, and, and said uh, this police may, I had her make it up, make, make the story up. Uh, Shorty Harden, the other supposed eyewitness, did testify, but his testimony contradicted other uh, testimony. On uh, th There had been a janitor who'd come out and seen something happen in front of the, the office building, the dome building as it's called had no reason to lie. And Shorty Harden's testimony completely contradicted what the janitor had said. So there were not only contradictions like that, but Frank Gable's lawyer was so bad, he didn't even bother or maybe even think to bring it up at the trial. 
It was it was wow. uh, a farce. It's interesting. I mean, it, it's it, he was so bad to the point where you have to think there was some intention behind it. And again, that's not something anyone has you know actual proof of. But it just makes it just makes no sense. He shouldn't have gotten the case. We talked about that in the show where you know there was an investigator we talked to who I believe was the investigator for Frank's defense um, who just didn't feel like this lawyer Bob Abel um, was the last person that would have gotten this tr- this this uh, case and that he didn't even have a phone. He didn't have an office of his own. He kind of shared a space with, he was very much like a, almost a Saul Goodman type figure, you know, early in his career. And, and all the judges and lawyers, I mean, remember uh, Salem's a fairly small town, knew who he was. They knew he was incompetent and they knew he was a heavy drinker to say the least. So he was given this case. His, his business was going down the tubes at the time. And he got the case. He was just way over his head, even if he hadn't been drinking. Uh, shortly before the trial, uh, the team of investigators, I mean, a tremendous amount of money was inv- paid by the state for the, the, uh, the defense on this thing, for the lawyers and, and, and the investigators. The investigators wrote a letter to the judge saying, we're not prepared to go to trial. Our, uh, our lawyers don't understand the case. And the judge blew it off, and and the trial went forward. But my own opinion is that Abel—they didn't have to tell Abel to throw it. He, but he knew what he had to do. Yeah. So, this gentleman Frank Abel—he has been in prison since nineteen what nineteen ninety nineteen eighty nine whenever when the trial was. Uh, uh, they arrested him in ninety. Okay. Okay. And just earlier this year. In April, a federal judge ordered his release. Wow. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so he, he did uh, almost 30 years, 30 years for a crime he had absolutely nothing to do with. The judge ruled that no reasonable juror would vote to convict uh, on the basis of evidence that was available then and, and the new evidence, including the recantation of all the so-called material witnesses wow. against him, leaving absolutely nothing left of the case. Right. And and then the, like the notion that they would retry him is is really almost comical, right? Cuz they don't really have yeah, anything they, to they, go they on. They would have nothing to uh to try him on yet the state of Oregon is appealing the judge's decision, judge's ruling on technical grounds in, in effect trying to put him back in prison for something they know he he didn't do. It's a fairly evil political stance to take. And furthermore, Phil, from what I understand, the Oregon DOJ also wanted to keep Gable in prison while that appeal was being hashed out. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, they they uh, went to the uh, federal judge and after his ruling and said that he's a danger to the community. He must be kept in. And, and the judge, by by this time, I mean, it had taken him two years to rule. I mean, we were all very nervous. We didn't know what was going to happen because this was a highly, uh, from the beginning, has been a highly political case. Uh, and, and you know, with all, all the, the Democratic establishment in Oregon, which, you know, this is a one-party state, behind the cover-up o- o- over the decades. And we didn't know what was going to happen. So uh, he kept it two years. He really understood the case, thanks to a brilliant uh, habeas corpus petition that, uh, written by the uh, federal public defender, Neil Brown. And, and 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 so when the uh, state asked for that, he just said, nope, <laughs> he's out. Uh, let's let's uh, get on with the appeal. It, it's worth say, uh, pointing out that 
the AG, Attorney General for, for Oregon, Ellen Rosenblum, is a protege of Neil Goldschmidt, who was the governor at the time of the Frankie murder and, and who was instrumental in the co- an instrumental force behind the cover up. Wow. The whole story with Goldschmidt is is its own thing and almost deserves its own podcast because he was, you know, found out to – I don't know. Like I, I hate – I don't want to feel like I'm spoiling anything, but honestly you can't really spoil this story because what we do is it's more of like it really takes you inside all of the ins and outs of every character involved in this whole situation and, and lets the listener kind of make up their own mind as to what they believe. But the idea of uh, Goldschmidt, there's an episode that we devote to Goldschmidt where he essentially was found – He absolutely was found out to have been um, a pedophile, a child rapist is the term that we use, um, because he was carrying on a relationship with a 13-year-old girl, or I believe, how old was she, Phil? Was it 14 at the time? She was 13 when it started. And it was, it's so heartbreaking because she was the daughter of two of Goldschmidt's most fervent supporters who were like, you know, stumping for or campaigning for him, going door to door, and they were really, you know, they worshipped the guy. And they knew about the the affair, quote unquote, the, the, the you know, the yeah. completely inappropriate relationship. And they borderline encouraged it. And we got all of this from one of your colleagues at the time, uh, Phil, Margie Boulay, who wrote this incredible expose about this relationship where she, you know, was uh, trusted by this young woman when she was, you know, much older. And this relationship had literally wrecked her life. I mean, she became, you know, an alcoholic, an outcast. Um, she, you know, he sent her away and paid her off and all of this really heartbreaking stuff. And then she, you know, ultimately passed away. But to hear Margie talk about this stuff and to know what Goldschmidt was capable of and that this was something he was trying to keep buried for years, you know, you can't make the one-to-one connection that this is why they didn't want, you know, they didn't want, um, Frankie digging around, but there sure are a lot of characters in this story that had a lot of stuff to hide, including the governor of the state, you know? Yeah, uh, I don't think, uh, could be proved wrong, I don't think that uh, Goldschmidt had anything to do with the murder itself, but he certainly didn't want uh, a thoroughgoing investigation of the murder, or at which would have led to corruption, uh, which would have led to ripping back the covers on uh, everything in Salem because at that time he was negotiating with the girl and her lawyers for the hush money payment. He eventually paid her over $300,000 as long as she kept her mouth shut. We'll pause here for a brief word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. 
I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. And we're back. Okay, so Phil, I have to admit something. I've, I grew up in Georgia. I've lived here my entire life. Done a little bit of traveling, but I've never been to Oregon. I have a picture of the state in my mind from popular culture, um, you know, Portlandia, of course, speaking particularly of Portland, um, also just of kind of marijuana culture of um, I, I have a picture of it in my mind a little bit that is very much of popular culture. Like a liberal bastion kind of yes, like on I'm, the hill, oh, yeah. you know. That, that's yeah. just the way very, I – Very progressive, right. That's the way I think about it in my mind because that's what's been highlighted, right? So can you paint a little bit of a picture of what uh, what Oregon, what Salem is like in the 80s? What, what does it feel like? Talk to me about – I mean we've talked about the corruption that we know of, but what is the place actually like and what's going on there? Well, uh, I, I wrote a column uh, for the Oregonian for for a while, and, and that's how I'm usually identified uh, in, in in this this context. But since then, I've I've written several books about corruption in Oregon, and the first one, which I wrote about about 20 years ago, I guess, called Portland Confidential. Oh, which by the way, everybody won the. Independent Publishers Best True Crime Award of 2005. I just want yeah, to throw yeah, that in. Yeah, it, it was uh, it, it, it was it was very successful. It was a regional bestseller, and and the Oregonian would not write about it. <laughs> wow, <laughs> uh, it was it was actually pretty funny. I knew they weren't going to review it. The book review editor told me that he'd been ordered not to review it, but they. At that time, they were printing at once a week. They would print the bestsellers in the Northwest, and they couldn't keep keep Portland Confidential out because it was number one for several weeks. And and so that first book 
was about a big vice scandal in Portland. At one time, back in the early 50s, Portland was notorious uh, throughout the nation. You know, there were Life magazine features on how corrupt it was. And, and there had been a, a big vice scandal. A lot of it had to do with national politics and with the Teamsters trying to move in and the local mob trying to protect itself. The Oregonian won a, a Pulitzer Prize at the time for telling half the story about how the Teamsters were coming in, but they didn't rec- uh, acknowledge that uh, the, uh, the town had been set up for, uh, for decades, uh, well back into the 19th century, by local mobs. And it ended in Senate hearings. I mean, it was that big a deal in, in uh, 1957. And everyone came back and, and tried to forget about it. So by, when I wrote that book, it had really been a secret not to be talked about. And, and, and everyone liked to imagine that Oregon was this pristine state. I think that that's sort of a carryover from the time when people were coming west anyway and thought they could leave the evils of civilization behind. So at least here, the impression that Oregon was somehow an exception to the general rules of uh, humanity uh, was fostered. And so when I wrote this uh, Portland Confidential. It was one of the reasons it was successful is that it was it was just a real breakthrough. You know, people starting to realize, uh, accept the, the fact that there was a real tradition of corruption here, as there is in in most places. I I think that, that you could find this in just about any American city. And one thing, uh, one thing I like about that. Uh that understanding of corruption and its ubiquity is that despite the image a lot of people outside of Oregon or outside of the Northwest have about the region and the place, despite that image, many of those same rules, and I like that you call them rules, Phil, still apply. Uh, Many people don't know that Oregon as a state was uh, initially founded as a yeah, as a racially motivated separatist uh, society. Um, now, of course, that's that's just uh, another example of how many skeletons we can find when we dig into these closets. Uh, but I'd like to change gears here just a bit and ask uh, ask a personal question of you. I've, I've worked with many uh, investigative journalists on various projects before. And one thing that I always find profoundly impressive and moving is the drive and the tenacity. And I I think for many of our um, journalism students or journalists in the audience today, uh, that's something that they would like like to hear your take on and hear you talk about. Could, Could you tell us what keeps you going? On, on a case like this, because this has been a, a hard road and a, and a twisting tale. Like, were, are there ever moments where there's a dark night of the soul where you think, maybe I should let this go? Or do you double up? I mean, where does the energy and the power and the drive come from to stay with these kinds of cases? It, it's always sort of a complicated thing. You know, from the beginning, I got started on it. I was writing the column. I was interested. It was obviously an interesting story, and then, then there were inconsistencies. I, I uh, certainly didn't know the answers, uh, but but I, I I knew there were a lot of questions, and so I, I started raising them. And, and then once I started getting all this pushback, it, it became a, a little bit of, of of a matter of pride, I suppose. And of course, you know, we haven't talked about the the brothers of the uh, the murdered man. Uh, 
uh, Kevin and, and, and Pat Frankie, who, who from the beginning raised questions about it. And, and, and once they realized that Gable was a patsy, defended him. I mean, and so I, I took their, their part in it from the beginning, it, partly because it was made it easier for me to tell the story. Uh, uh, through Kevin's eyes, but also because they were right. They were raising good questions. And so, you know, I, I, got, I got more and more involved in the story over the, the years, and, and I would say, okay, I'm going to write a book about it now. And, and then I, I'd say, no, I don't have enough. And I'd, I'd go off and write a book about something else. Then I'd come back to it, and i say, okay, I'm going to do it now. Finally, you know, over the years, Kevin was doing more research himself, uh, investigation, and I was, we, we found that, you know, started understanding the case more. I mean, it was very difficult because the official investigation was a cover-up. Then finally, this brilliant habeas corpus petition by uh, the public defender, uh, they, she and her team spent several years going into this in depth and uh, confirmed so much of what we talked about and, and, and elucidated all the rest of it, uh, finally, after all these years, finally understood it well enough to, to make the, the, the case that we make in, in murder in Oregon. But why, I guess your, your question, why, why, do you, why do you keep doing it? It's, it's, it's for a combination of motives, and some of them very personal, and, and, and some of them probably a little selfish at, at, at the beginning, but in this case, anyway, deeply invested in it, uh, finally, because just the, the uh, injustice on, uh, of it on so many levels. And, and I've got to say, also, because I'm very interested in these stories. I, I spend my, I've, I've discovered that I, I really enjoy putting together cases like this and understanding how they really work. So that, that's part of it, too. It's really interesting too, Phil, spending time with you and Kevin uh, through the production of the show and kind of seeing the way you you guys basically became – you had each other's backs in such a real way. And when you and Kevin sort of met back when this was, was happening, um, you really forged a friendship. It was like a partnership where you were almost kind of uh, a, a duo of kind of uh, make sh- detectives, I guess, for, for lack of a better term. That's why I kind of compare this to the whole true detective story of the first season where – it really is, you know, you two against kind of the world trying to, you know, push for the truth um, against all odds. And Kevin even was targeted by the police. I mean, there were times where he was harassed and his tires were slashed and there were notes on his car saying, go home. Oh, he had, he, he had guns pointed at him. Right. And he they, up, they tried to get him killed. Yeah. And he uprooted his life from Florida where he had a successful construction business and moved to Oregon and really embedded himself in this kind of underbelly where he, you know, almost became like that hard-boiled kind of Dashiell Hamnet detective going to all the sleazy dives and really becoming, yeah. you know, making his own informants and, you know, and, and doing all the things that the police clearly weren't going to do because it wasn't in their interest to actually, you know, point the fingers at the right people. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. And to spend time with you guys, I realize that both of you are almost more comfortable in the presence of, uh, of, of folks that maybe skirt the law in a little. And, and you introduced me to a friend of yours, for example, who was like, he was a pilot who 
What did, well, tell me about your, your your friend who you introduced me to, if you, without naming names, but like these oh, are some. Oh, uh, the, the pilot story is is, is an, another one. I, <laughs> at one point, I, I was working as, as a legitimate journalist in, in Washington, D.C. I dropped out and went back, went down to Miami, dropped out again from a newspaper and ended up working for an investigative agent, a private investigator who was uh, doing business for one of the biggest drug smugglers in the Western Hemisphere. And and uh, I, I got uh, caught up in that. But I, I think the guy you're talking about in Salem was my friend Roger. Uh, he came down when we were doing interviews uh, in Salem. And, and uh, he had spent a lot of time in some of the best uh, prisons <laughs> around the country uh, for a, a, a number of crimes. Very intelligent guy. He's sort of uh, and, and, and a great storyteller. I do feel comfortable uh, with with people who've gone through stuff like that. It's, it's uh, listening to war stories, and, and, and you know the drug drug uh, drug wars were wars. I mean, I, I I give people the same sort of license I would I would give so, uh, someone who'd been overseas. More with Phil Stanford after we take a quick sponsor break. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. 
With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. And we're back. Let's dive in. Hey, Phil, I want to ask you a, a question about your opinion. Please feel free to skip this uh, if you'd like to. But okay. um, just as someone, you, you currently still live in Oregon, correct? Right. So as someone who lives in Oregon, um, how do you feel about the culture the that's happening right now, the legalization of uh, marijuana? Like how, how, how do you feel about all of that growing up, you know, covering crime and the drug trade uh, over all these years? The um, <laughs> uh, the legalization uh, has made – very little difference in in my life or the life of people around me. I most of the people I, I know have have smoked dope most of their lives. The biggest difference uh, legalization has made in Oregon is that it's put some people out of business who are uh, operating illegally. You know, uh, the, their price the price has dropped as you would predict, and and uh, so it's put some some friends out of out of business, but. Right now, I'm living out uh, on the coast, uh, Oregon coast, uh, in a little town, and and gotten to uh, know the the little bit about the history that here. Uh, everyone here uh, was raising dope. Uh, everyone knew, you know, it's a little town. Everyone knew who the dope, uh, who was selling dope, had to be protected by the the local police, and they were. I, I guess I'm getting a little bit off the question of what legalization has meant, but it, it, it's actually meant very little in Oregon. Well, I, 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 think, I, I think you make an interesting point, though. You talk about police protection of, of say, marijuana dealers, but what in murder in Oregon, we're talking a lot about police protection of methamphetamine dealers and much more uh, sinister drugs and things that really ruin people's lives. That's the thing that why I say none of this is spoilers about murder in Oregon, because it really is about the experience of meeting all of these characters. And we have have firsthand accounts from people that, you know, really had their lives ruined by a lot of the players, the higher level players in the story. But, you know, meth in Oregon is a, a rampant problem. And that's the kind of drugs that were being smuggled into the prisons with police protection. Uh, and that's a big part of our story. So, I mean, do you differentiate between the two? I know you talk about, you know, you people that are in the drug wars, you you, you respect them and their stripes, etc. But, you know, I do feel like there's a difference between, you know, smuggling marijuana and smuggling heroin and methamphetamine and things that, you know, tear families apart and ruin lives. Sure, there, there's a, a difference between uh, between them. I, I um, but they they all get involved in the same trade. I mean, the the people who were protecting the uh, officials who were protecting marijuana were protecting heroin, were protecting meth. The the big deal in in uh, Oregon prisons now is that they've declared cigarettes out of bounds. So uh, cigarettes sell for more than marijuana. Huh. And yeah. uh, and and so there's there's a, a lively trade uh, of of cigarette smuggling uh, run by the guards. The, the guards are, are allowed to bring cigarettes into the prison in their lunch boxes. Right. Where do you think they go? So it, it's um, 
Drugs are drugs, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I, I certainly recognize that some are, are more dangerous than others. I, I would certainly say that hard liquor is more dangerous than marijuana. But sure, the, agreed. Um, yeah. And, and has probably ruined more lives than heroin. And is probably doing more uh, doing more damage as we record yeah. this episode. Yeah. I do think your agnostic approach to like you, you're looking at you have a problem with injustice. You don't make judgments necessarily. But what you what really gets under your skin is people who are liars and who are covering up the truth. And and you have this thirst for and that's what drives you, I think, in my opinion, to Ben's previous question is 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 you cannot abide by people getting away with, you know, throwing others under the bus who didn't deserve it, who didn't actually have any stake in the game and who, you know, were just used as kind of pawns in these other more powerful people's kind of master plan, for lack of a better term. Would you agree with that or what, what are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I, I think I would. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I have another question. We're talking a lot about police corruption, which is an open secret, especially in various smaller communities throughout the United States. Do you, in your experience, uh, in the various regions you've worked, do you find that Oregon has – it feels so cynical to ask it this way. Do you find that it has – an extraordinarily high amount of uh, law enforcement corruption or a normal amount, whatever that is. Uh, And I guess the question is, is Oregon exceptional in the degree of corruption, whether through uh, smuggling or protected rackets, or is this just sort of the, the lay of the land that we don't typically talk about in mainstream media? I I think that's exactly what it is. Uh, And and it's not just that we don't talk about it, and in, in, uh, it, it's not really recognized. People can't af- really afford to recognize this. But I, I think it is, uh, of course, the levels of uh, uh, corruption depend on the place and, and on the time and vary from time to time But in, in, in every place. But, um, yeah, I, I, I've lived a number of different places. And I, I worked as a private investigator in Miami and in D.C. and uh, in, in Portland. I, I, I worked, you know— uh, as a writer in, 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 in those places and lived a lot of places. I, I think that corruption is, is, is certainly part of our, our, our uh, political economy. There, there's um, a really good book on it. It's by a sociologist, uh, William Chambliss, called On the Take. He, he wrote it back in the, the, I think, the late 70s or 80s. Uh, you can... Uh, it's, it's worth getting, but he talks about crime as a system that involves politicians, law enforcement people, and of course, uh, he says, and not always, most importantly, the racketeers. It's certainly true. In fact, he was sort of the inspiration for me getting started writing about corruption. I, I'd uh, been pushed out at the Oregonian and uh, doing this and that. Uh, it was in Powell's bookstore, which is a great bookstore there, and looking at the oh, crime yeah. section. And and there was this book I hadn't heard of before called On the Take by William Chambliss. So I got it. And he talks about Seattle in the 70s. He was doing his doctoral thesis there, and he basically penetrated the Seattle underworld where, you know, in, in, at the time in Seattle, everyone was telling him, oh, this is a, a squeaky clean town. No, he got out there and he started talking to these people and worked his way up the chain and he wrote the thesis about it. And it's, it's, it's really terrific. And, and, and I said, well, maybe 
that will explain some things in Portland. So I started researching those things that uh, sort of the lower level people involved in, 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 in the vice activities and uh, made friends, got to, got to know these people who uh, the ones, <laughs> a lot of them were dead by that time because this was about uh, Portland in the 50s. It was the, the old vice scandal uh, that I turned into Portland Confidential, the vice scandal that everyone pretended never happened and was able to reconstruct that. But it is a system. And, 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 and if you look at Portland history, for example, the first marshal was the saloon keeper. He was a gunslinger from California. A saloon back then was booze, gambling, and upstairs the girls. Six of the uh, the nine councilmen early on in Portland were saloon keepers. Come on. And Portland considered itself an exception to the rule. I mean, it's because they were they had their blinders on. But yeah, uh, you look at New York, Chicago, Providence, Rhode Island, Miami, San Francisco, Los Angeles. I mean, and then the small towns are the same way, same way. So I'd also like to ask you uh, if you have any advice to our our budding investigative journalist in the audience today, because I, I know my spider sense tells me at least that a lot of people who are who are hearing this, even if they haven't tuned into the podcast Murder in Oregon yet, are are also identifying on some level with some of the personal and professional struggles you have to face when you're, you know, when you're in what can feel like a David versus Goliath situation. Do you have advice to uh, to journalists who are, are digging into a story or people who would want to pursue investigative journalism? Um, I don't know what I would do now. When I got into it, it was it was easier to sort of slip through the front door and, and, and get a job. These days, it seems you have to be so credentialed to uh, uh, to, to to get in. And by that time, you're, you're pretty well conditioned not to ask a lot of the questions that a good investigative journalist would ask. A lot of what passes for investigative journalism uh, at a local and, and a national level is just uh, people being fed leaks. To really go against conventional wisdom, which is, is, is what we're talking about here, is, is, a, is a very uh, difficult proposition in, in the media, especially now. And the best investigative journalists in this, con- in this country, Seymour Hirsch, can't publish in this country anymore. That'll give you some idea of his problems. So, I, I mean, it, there are people out there who are, who are getting away with good stuff. Uh, Matt Taibbi is, is good. Uh, Glenn Greenwald is good. And there, there are a few more. But you, you've got to find an organization that will support you. I, 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 I spend a lot of time in, in uh, sort of devising getting my stuff out by devising strategies. When I was writing the column, I would always pretend to be a little bit more conservative than I was or use the conservative argument to uh, uh, support a radical position. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of mental judo that goes on in in, in the media anyway, (laughs) and and, and you have to learn how to do that. But I'm not terribly sanguine about uh, the, the possibilities 
for uh, doing investigative work on, on the, the, the in the mass media right now. No. You know, Phil, I, I agree with all of that um, completely in terms of print journalism and more traditional media outlets. But I will say that, you know, some of those uh, those organizations that are more traditional are, are not the only game in town anymore. They're no longer the only arbiters of, you know, distribution of information. And even with murder in Oregon, while maybe we couldn't have gotten the Oregonian to print a story like that, obviously, uh, we were able to do it as a podcast. And, and, and the only arbiters of, of that information were, you know, you and, and myself and, and Lauren Pacheco, the producer. And of course, you know, we've edited things with legal to make sure we didn't get sued. But, you know, with podcasting, I think, you know, young people have the opportunity if they really see something they want to uncover, like our friend Payne Lindsay, for example, and Up and Vanished, he did an investigative um, deep dive into a cold case that ultimately led to it being solved. So I think podcasting is kind of taking that place and sort of uh, democratizing the ability of uh, new voices to kind of really push things forward um, in a way that maybe, you know, print journalism wouldn't allow. Like, for example, even that Margie Boulay story we talk about in the show, uh, Murder in Oregon, that exposed Neil Goldschmidt's um, crimes uh, and, and horrific acts, they wouldn't publish it. The Oregonian wouldn't publish it until this woman had died. I mean, it, that's right. It, no, it, no I, I, I obviously left off, uh, uh, stopped short of, of, of social media and podcasts. But um, yeah, oh, this this would never have come out in the print media, and uh, and 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 we did it as a podcast, and it, it's very solid. Um, it, it, uh, <laughs> it, it's uh, amusing to note that the Oregonian has not taken note even of the podcast, uh, successful as it has been. Wow. Didn't you guys slip an ad in there? We sure did. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, and, and, and j- just to point this out, too, like maybe we were burying the lead here. Phil wrote for the Oregonian for many years and was basically pushed out, and it became pretty clear that the Oregonian had a political axe to grind in this whole thing, that they were kind of in the Goldschmidt camp. And even when it was revealed in a press conference, because, you know, uh, many, many years later, after statute of limitations on rape had passed, Goldschmidt was exposed for having had this relationship. He did this this press conference where the Oregonians sent all of their kind of, you know, company company guys um, who basically buried the lead. And I think they used the headline, they called it, had a an affair with an underage yeah. girl as opposed Long to go affair. Yeah. Which obviously is, this is their absurd. Headline. That's banner absurd. Headline. It is, it is rape. Uh, you know, it's statutory or otherwise having, there's no such thing as having an affair with an underage girl. That's uh, an absolute misnomer. And it just goes to show they really did stand firm in that Goldschmidt camp. And that was a big part of why you guys butted head so much is because you wouldn't tow that company line. Right. Yeah. Oh Yeah. Yeah, the the editor I, I find that who finally pushed me out uh, was a uh, a celebrity sucker, and 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 she came to town. Her 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 biggest uh, uh, aim obviously was to become good friends with Goldschmidt and his wife. They are to this day. Hmm. So I, I have a question here, Phil, that I, I definitely wanted to get to uh, before we close our show, and. It's, it's again, it's another personal question, but I, I know it's something a lot of us are thinking while we're listening. You clearly uh, were 
you know, clearly were persecuted by the Oregonian. That's that's just a demonstrable fact. Did you ever feel that your life, or have you ever felt at any point in this investigation that your life uh, was in danger or that, you know, somebody might, uh, as stereotypical as it sounds, send some goons your way or uh, practice some sort of intimidation tactic? Well, actually, a, a judge who conducted a an investigation in the Frankie case at that time called me at one point and said, uh, we, we received a, a, a threat, an anonymous threat against your life. <laughs> and I said, well, who's it from? And he said, I said, anonymous. Uh, but, and I said, well, why did you tell me? He said, well, I, 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 that's what I had to do. And I, I said, thank you very much. Uh, but it's nothing that you could think too much about. Um, in fact, I, I never had, or hardly ever had a, a uh, first-hand information that would have made me dangerous to people. I was just a journalist. Uh, Kevin was the one who was uh, most in danger because he he was the one who was really driving uh, the moral force behind uh, the resistance on on, on this thing. Uh, the brother of the murdered man, trying to get uh, get answers to his his brother's murder. But uh, you know, I, I've received threats now and again, uh, and uh, you know, it. it <laughs> I, I guess the, the the best advice I ever got on those is that uh, from um, Bob Adams, who was head of the detective agency I worked for in Miami. I got a, a threat back then. I went in and said, Bob, um, and told him about it, and he said, Oh, don't worry about the ones you hear. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, that's I could see that. Well, so then, what does your uh, home security situation look like, Phil? Oh, I, I used to have alarms. I'm, I'm living on the coast now. If they want to get me, they'll, they'll get me. <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm, 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 uh, I don't think anyone's out to get me. Well, uh, that is, uh, first off, obviously fantastic to hear yeah. uh, because I, I think, you know, sometimes uh, people are – pre-frightened or pre-intimidated to dive into stories like that because they they have they have a fear that outweighs their tenacity and folks listening we hope you understand this is just a taste of the show Murder in Oregon, which I believe is available in its entirety. Yeah, now, you can right? go binge the entire uh, twelve episode series on Apple Podcasts or the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get podcasts. Uh, and you know, it's just just to, to to that point you made, Ben. It's funny. Phil and I also worked together. We met working on Happy Face, which is another series you can binge in its entirety about the daughter of a uh, Pacific Northwest long haul truck driver uh, and serial killer and rapist by the name of Keith Hunter Jesperson, who Phil um, reported on, and actually he reached out to Phil's newspaper, and then Phil coined the name Happy Face Killer, and that's where we met um, and found out about this story about Michael Frankie. But I had a very distinct feeling late in the game in production on Happy Face about, you know, Keith Jesperson is alive and in prison, and we all know the kind of cult of personality that serial killers are and the kind of potential followers they attract. It occurred to me in production, my name's all over this thing. Am I going to start getting threats? You know, are people going to come, like, stalk me and my family at my house? And I had that momentary, you know, fear, and then just kind of pushed it away and, and realized, like, no, we're doing interesting work. You have to kind of be a little bit, I'm not saying I'm fearless, 
list, but you do have to kind of throw caution to the wind sometimes and, and really dive in with this stuff. And I know uh, all three of us here have, have worked on shows like that. And, and just this show in general, we talk about things that could potentially make us targets for uh, – crazed individuals of some stripe or another. So um, we're with you there, Phil, and you definitely have to kind of shove that stuff into the back of your mind and just keep pushing forward. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't have anything intelligent to say. I'm sorry. Well, that, uh, you have uh, many, many uh, brilliant works out there for people who would like to learn more about Phil Stanford's work and his research. Uh, again, we recommend Portland Confidential. Uh, there's also White House Call Girl. Uh, there's also a collection of columns from the or- Oregonian called Do You Know How Much a Light Year Is? And Phil, I was surprised to note that there's also a graphic novel, City of Roses. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. Uh, did it with Dark Horse Comics, uh, great artist, and uh, it, it's the story of corruption in, uh, in Portland in the 70s when the, the narcotics cops were uh, going wild. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, I, I later, uh, I, I did the graphic novel while I was uh, getting up the uh, steam to write uh, the book, which had to be uh, documented uh, a, a, a good deal uh, more. And it was very difficult to do because no one wanted to talk. And that book is called Rose City Vice. It's Dirty Cops and Dirty Robbers, uh, Portland in the 70s. I am going to get that graphic novel as soon as we finish this episode. Which is which is ending right now. That's right. Uh, so the award-winning author, investigative journalist, uh, the mind behind uh, our podcast, Murder in Oregon, Phil Stanford. Phil, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and Phil, where can people uh, where can people go to learn more about your work or to find uh, some of your publications? Okay, well, a- Amazon's the easiest way to do it. Uh, all the books are available on Amazon, as far as I know, and um, Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and don't forget, you can check out uh, Murder in Oregon in its entirety, available now wherever you get podcasts, and also Happy Face, uh, where Phil is featured uh, pretty regularly on that one. Um, and, but, but Murder in Oregon really is Phil's kind of brainchild, and it's been a pleasure working with you, and I do believe we've got some exciting things up our sleeves uh, for the future, Phil, but thanks a million for coming on Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, my friend. Okay, it's been great. Thanks very much. And you can also find us on the internet. This concludes our episode, but not our show. Find stuff they don't want you to know on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We especially like to recommend our Facebook community group. Here's where it gets crazy, where you get to hang out with our favorite part of the show, your fellow listeners. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking and all-day drinks for one low price but you better hurry because this bundle won't last long save now at cedarpoint.com
from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now.